So if you uh, have been here with us uh, the uh, past week, you know that we're going to be doing a series this summer on the Psalms. And if you're new to the book of the Psalms, uh, first and foremost, the Psalms are a hymn book for the people of Israel and for the church today. Uh, And this means that each Psalm was written to be a song, a song for the people to sing in corporate worship. And like all songs, the Psalms were written to shape us. If I can give just a silly example, uh, we all know this. Uh, If you played any sports growing up, uh, you might have had a warm-up tape. And on that warm-up tape, you pick songs that were there to form you and shape you to get ready for the game, right? For me, when I played basketball, it was We Ready, and that's what got me ready, right? So you have these songs that form you and shape you. And so this morning, as we approach this passage, Uh, I want to just consider together briefly why God has preserved this song, Psalm 3, for us as the church to sing, and how this song is supposed to form us as followers of Jesus and as the community of God. And like Bart showed us last week in Psalm 1, if you're here with us, the Psalms are particularly helpful in teaching us more about our emotions. Whereas last week, uh, Psalm 1 spoke about happiness, Psalm 3 this week is speaking about fear. And this song is an individual song of lament. It's written from the perspective of a particular person, David, who is seeking comfort and protection of God in the midst of scary circumstances. But you might be asking the question as we dive in, why does this matter to me today? We are not the kings or the queens of Israel. And while this song, I think, is greatly helpful for us today, because although that is true, we too are fearful people. But I think it's important before we dive into this topic to ask the question, what kind of fear is this passage speaking of? Because the Bible talks about fear in a number of different ways. You might have even recognized in one of our songs uh, today that it spoke of the fear of the Lord. It spoke of a godly fear. And this is actually a positive fear. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is actually the beginning of wisdom. And this fear ascribes to God due reverence, honor, and awe. This fear of the Lord really is an entrusting of yourself to him. And it's not simply speaking in this passage of uh, biological fear responses. Like the rush of cortisol and adrenaline to your brain is actually a gift from God to help you survive and make sense of sin and danger. And so fear that is constructive and specific actually helps us. So when David says he will not be afraid, he's not saying that if uh, forces run at him, that he won't have a rush of adrenaline and cortisol to his brain that helps him survive. Uh, You know, if if you dared me to walk into the street and I dipped my toe in it, I would get afraid uh, because there's rushing traffic, and that might actually help me say, yeah, I'm not going to do that, right? And so that's not the fear that's in play. But the Bible does in other places speak of fear negatively. To give you a couple examples, in Numbers 13 through 14, uh, the people of God are promised a land to inhabit. And so they send out spies to to go out and, and make sense of what they're about to enter. And they find that there's a military force there who's strong. And so these spies uh, report back what's happening, and the people are said to be afraid. And because of their fear, they choose not to enter the land. They refuse to enter because they are afraid. On other parts of scripture, it speaks of our freedom from fear. In 1 John 4, it tells us that perfect love, that is Jesus, is actually someone who casts out fear. And in this passage today, as we see in verse 6, the Bible in many places describes those who confidently abide 
and the promises of God instead of being consumed by fear as faithful. See, this fear, which is in mind throughout this passage, is a fear that ascribes undue power, reverence, and awe to forces other than God himself. This fear does not wait upon or trust the promises of God. And so this is the fear that we're speaking about. And if we're honest, we too are prone to this fear. See, we might not fear invading armies like David, but we do fear a lot of things. We fear the uncertainty of tomorrow. We fear a pastoral transition as this church. We fear the opinion of others. We may fear the results of an election and much more. And if we are honest, do we not long to not be afraid? Do we not long for a presence that gives us peace and boldness and uncertainty? Today is Father's Day, uh, as we kind of address in the prayers of the people. And one of the things I think that I appreciate most about my dad when I reflect on the ways in which he was uniquely present for me as a kid who really struggled with fear of failure is that he was at every basketball game. And what I learned was that I didn't have to be unnecessarily hard on myself because he wasn't going to be unnecessarily hard on me. And I think we long for this in our parents. In this passage today, we see through David that a major part of the freedom from fear that is available to us in God comes through realizing who this Heavenly Father is. And my hope for us today is that if you are struggling to trust in Jesus, the Spirit would renew in you confidence in his character. And my prayer for those who are here checking out Christianity is that you might see today the delight of the Father for you and how it might change everything Uh, to be in his presence and to have access to his community and our fear. So before we dive in, let me pray real quick. Jesus, uh, we confess that we are a people who are often afraid. We're afraid of tomorrow. We're afraid, uh, even in our darkest moments, that you might not fulfill your promises. And we pray that your spirit would be present, that your word would speak, and that you would remind us who you are and our hope in you. With all these things in your name, amen. So fundamentally, the main point that I want us to see today is that because God is our Savior, we can be freed from fear, even amongst our enemies. And the kind of sections of this passage that are laid out, I'm just going to briefly use a guy named Jack Collins, his outline, because it's really simple, is in verse 1 through 2, we see what he sees, that is David. In 3 through 4, we see what he believes. In 5 through 6, we see what he finds. And in 7 through 8, we see what he prays. So what he sees, what he believes, what he finds, and what he prays. But before we dive in, there's actually a title in this psalm, which is really rare in the book of Psalms. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. And if you're unfamiliar with this, in 2 Samuel 15 through 16, Absalom is David's son. And he has rebelled against him to take the throne. And so here, there's not only the real physical danger of an invading force, but there's also psychological and spiritual threats as David navigates the sadness of his son's rebellion and the accusations of other Israelites who are actually questioning his salvation. And here what we see is David model faithfulness in difficult circumstances so that we as the people of God can become faithful in difficult, although often less dire circumstances. So that's what's going on. And so first, what he sees. In 1 through 2, we see that he sees foes and that they are many. He's in danger. An army has risen up against him to oppose his kingship. And this is even sadder in context because the leader of his foes is his son. 
And his foes are a contingent of the people of God. Like these are his people who are rising up against him. And many foes is the phrase used actually in 2 Samuel 15 to account this uh, situation. And there it refers to the majority of Israelites that turned against David. So there are foes and there are many. And we see in verse 2 that this fear is not just that there are a lot of people, but that the many speak. As we noted earlier, there's not just a physical threat, but a psychological and spiritual threat here. His identity is threatened. See, what they say is there's no salvation for him and God. Those are their words. See, fundamentally, these foes are trying to get David to question that God's going to follow through on his promises. The promise in 2 Samuel 7 to protect David's kingship, but even more scary, they're trying to get him to question whether God actually even loves him anymore. Is he still one of God's people, or has God left him? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're familiar with aspects of this in our own lives. Have you ever struggled to trust that God would follow through on his promises? Have you ever been in danger of a physical threat? Have people, even Christians, threatened your physical or economic well-being? Have you been afraid of your identity in Christ? Do you believe sometimes that you are beyond saving? Or that if God really knew what you did, then he would leave you? Have you been taunted by others that your salvation is unsure? Or maybe, have you simply walked with others who have faced these threats? And in these moments, what do you believe or look toward to be reminded about what is true? Well, let's see what David looks to in verses 3 through 4. So what he believes. And fundamentally, what David believes is that God, our Savior, is our comfort in danger. And he's our Savior in four ways that he gives us. First, in verse 3, God is our shield in danger. And this passage uses the phrase that he is a shield around me or about me not a shield to me, which is interesting. If you've watched like medieval movies where they fight with swords, you might notice that there's two kinds of shields that are often used. There's the little round shields that you're kind of in a duel and you're fending off the blows of the other person and protecting yourself. But then you can think about the, the movies where they're storming a castle and there's a shield around them. It's almost like a door. And it's there to protect you from arrows and lava, and not lava, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> hot things that are being poured on you, oils, uh, as you storm the castle, right? And what's being talked about there is the shield in this passage is not a shield that says, I'm going to run away from danger, but it's something that is around you as you move into scary circumstances. So God is our shield in danger. Uh, he's not calling his church to separate from scary things, but what we see is that he is a shield. And so our belief and the protection of God is not saying we will never experience real danger or suffering. This shield is carried into danger, but rather it is about his sovereign care as we enter danger in obedience. And, you know, as we think about what this means for us, it means that we can move forward with God as our shield. He will work in and through us, even in the midst of enemies. We need not fear that his purposes will be thwarted. The promises of God cannot be stopped from fulfillment by our sin by others' words, or even from physical danger. He is our shield, so we can be bold. But we also see that God is the giver of glory in verse 3. See, the, the psalm remarks that he is my glory and the lifter of my head. And what David is doing is he's learning to relocate his glory or honor in the midst of accusations about his identity. 
One commentator, Golding J, says the declaration that Yahweh is my honor goes beyond the declaration that Yahweh is a shield. Yahweh restores the honor as well as the person. In defeat and dishonor, we cannot lift up our heads, but in victory, he holds up our heads high. See, one of the reasons why attacks against our reputation or identity can be so scary is that if we're honest, we deeply long for acceptance. Yet what we see is that David relocates his glory in the proper place. He need not be beloved by these foes because he believes that he is beloved by God. His acceptance is not in jeopardy. And we also see that God is the lifter of his head. And the lifter of his head language is a a denotion of, of victory. It's like raising your horn at the end of the battle. And what we see in this is that God is the one who lifts it. This is not a buck up message of be stronger and lift up your head. But God is the one who lifts it. His victory is not in the acceptance of man, but in the acceptance of God. And so also he is not defeated nor afraid when man does not accept him. When I think about this, I think of uh, my experience whenever I get on a plane. Uh, have you had this experience? Uh, I mean, you're probably not six foot eight, so maybe not exactly. But you walk onto a plane, uh, and uh, I usually fly coach. And so you uh, get on this plane, and I enter through first class, and I see these seats that recline into a bed, and I hear, you know, I, I smell the wisp of the mimosas as I pass by, and I feel the steam rising from these hand towels, and, uh, and then I move past the curtain. And I sit in my economy seat with no legroom and a loud snorer next to me, nestling his head in my shoulder. And I think, man, those first classers are the ones who really belong. And sometimes I think this is how we as Christians think of the Christian life. We're on the plane. We know we're a part of the community. But we really think that we're in coach. And if that's true, then everything is really going to feel like it's in jeopardy. Because our whole lives is proving to ourselves in the face of others that we really belong in first class. We may fear our security, yet what we see is that God is a God who does not drop his people, and his acceptance is eternal. Our victory is in God, not in man. And so what does it mean for us that our victory is in God? What need we fear is a better question if our glory is in God. If our glory is in God, then our victory is not in our mortal bodies but in our heavenly bodies, so we need not fear even death. If our victory is in God, then our victory is not in the words of our coworkers or our neighbors or our friends or our families, but in God's words, who says to you, you are my beloved child. If our victory is in God, then our glory is not in our financial, vocational, or relational success, whatever that means, but in God's mission that he is carrying out in and through his church to renew all things. And third, what we see really briefly is that God reveals himself, or what David believes, is that God is not distant. We see this in verse 4. See, it says that he knows that he can cry aloud to his Savior. Uh, In the words of uh, St. Ted Lasso, if I may, uh, there's something worse out there than being sad, and that is being sad and being alone. What we see is that David knows that God does not leave his people. He promises that he will be with us. I think one of the most encouraging things about the Psalms is that they provide evidence for us that God delights to hear our prayers, even the ones in fear or in doubt. And do you know that God invites you to talk to him, not just in neat and tidy prayers, but in the uncertainty and the fear of doubt of life? Do you know that you have access to him? And fourth, we see that God has already acted on our behalf. 
In verse 4, David recalls God's care for him in the past. He sees that God has answered him. He has answered him from physical deliverance, but also, as one pastor points out, this action is pointing to a spiritual deliverance as well. He answers in verse 4 from what is called his holy hill. And this is in reference to the tabernacle, the place where a sacrifice was offered for the forgiveness of sin. And David here looks to the tabernacle, the place where God dwelled, for evidence of his salvation in the midst of accusation that there is no salvation for him in God. And for the church today, we have an even more sure substitute to look to for assurance in our fear, Jesus. As he says on the cross, it is finished. And so what does this mean for us? How does this song encourage us to believe? Well, it means that the display of God's love for us is not actually in our present circumstances. Your firing, your fight with your spouse, your recent diagnosis, your loneliness, all these things uh, are not the display of God's love for you. But Christ's death is God's display of his love. And because God's display of his love is Christ's death, it's something that can never be taken away. It is finished, it is fixed in time, and it is enduring forever. And so this psalm encourages us to remember when we are afraid of our belief that God is our shield, that God is our glory, that God is not distant, and that God has acted. And what we see is that David finds here in verses 5 through 6 when he remembers to believe these things, is that what David finds is that recalling who God is and what he has done enables him to walk by faith and not by sight. And I want to do a quick clarification here of what I mean by this. I think it can be easy to find this passage, um, especially when we see the assurance that he finds, a little discouraging. Because we can look to it and be tempted to think, well, I believe this stuff like theologically, but I don't feel this peace that we see in this passage. So what does this mean about me? Or for this encouragement to feel maybe cheap, because times in our lives where the comfort we have in Jesus might have been used to invalidate how scary your circumstances might be, rather than the assurance that you have. Well, let me just clarify that walking by faith and not by sight does not mean that we have become blind to what is around us. David sees that his foes are many, and he is really in serious peril. And God has preserved this passage in his hymn book so that the church may be equipped to join alongside people who are suffering and who are afraid. And so this is not an invalidation. And in addition, David is not writing this uh, in a cave as he has a sudden epiphany. I think I I read this and think that, Uh, but learning to rest in God is not a light switch. Uh, As one commentator says really helpfully, he says, here we encounter a feature of the Psalms of Lament, namely that they telescope time. As Longman puts it, the Psalms compress time in such a way that what was a long process appears to be a sudden insight. The unwary reader might suppose that the relief came in instantaneously. And so this belief is a process. It's not instantaneous. But what we see and he finds is that he is able to sleep and he is not afraid. Uh, I think how countercultural this is when I think of the phrase, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Uh, Maybe that's just a weird thing that I said in college. Um, But ultimately what this phrase says is, I cannot sleep with uncertainty. I need control over what is tomorrow in order to have rest. See, it's a peculiar thing in our culture to be able to sleep in the midst of uncertainty. Yet what we see is that David's belief of who God is and his relationship with him enables him to sleep without fear. And so I would encourage us to ask this question today. 
What would it look like to walk by faith and not by sight in the things that I fear? How might God be challenging us today to not live in fear of these things because we can live in assurance of his grace? But finally, you might be asking this question as we kind of move towards a close. What do I do about it? Maybe you're a practical person. You're asking the question, what do I do about it? Well, in in, uh, verses 7 through 8, we see what he prays. And his prayer reveals God's access and his character. So first, his access, which I won't belabor. As noted earlier, God acts, and he is not distant. Prayer is an incredible gift. We are not alone, and so we need not fear. But also, this speaks to his character. In verse 7, we see that this God to whom he prays is a God of justice. He says, you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. For some of this, this makes us uh, uncomfortable. But do you know that God encourages you to cry out to him, even as raw as this? And this is good news because we want to serve a God who will not let evil prevail. And David also knows that he does not need vengeance because justice is in the hands of his heavenly father who he is praying to. What a comfort that is. One theologian, David Wells, I really appreciate how he defines prayer. He says, prayer is rebellion against the status quo. And what he means is that faithfulness means praying against evil. It means praying against sin and entrusting to your father that he will do something about it. And so God asks us to pray. But we also see that this God actually delights to bestow blessing on his people in verse 8. David prays, blessing beyond your people. And remember how uh, hard this must be, because these people to whom he is praying for are the very people who are rising up against him. But what we see is that God is a God who loves his church. His church isn't perfect. God wants justice in it too. But this psalm isn't just about God working in the life of an individual. It's about God at work amongst his people. And this means for us that we need not fear that Christ's church in the long run will ultimately fail. Locally, individual churches may close, leaders may have moral failures, and cultures of churches may change, yet we serve a God who delights to bless his people, and we await a day where his church will simply be beautiful and without blemish. And until that day, we serve a Savior who is beautiful and without blemish. We therefore need not fear. So as we wrap up, how does this psalm form us as the people of God in the midst of fear? It forms us first to become a church who weep with those who weep. This song, although it was written about an individual, was written for the church. It was written so that we might sing it together and join with the troubles and fears of a person or a family and join uh, with them so that they might know that they are not alone. That we as the family of God share in both each other's troubles and joys. And this support requires wisdom. It always listens before it speaks. It can be as simple as validation. It can be prayer. Sometimes it can even be singing. In my life, I've often felt this from the family of God, from one of his people coming over, over a glass of bourbon, and just listening to what's going on. Second, we see that this psalm forms us to grow hearts shaped by God's invitation to seek him in prayer. We have access, and we don't need to fix ourselves before we come to him, but he does delight to help us grow as we do come to him. Do you know that you have access to God? Third, it shapes our hearts by reminding us of God's provision and protection in the past. I think one of the greatest dangers of our fear is that it makes us forget. 
Remembering that God does not drop his people gives us confidence in the face of suffering. It helps us trust, and we should therefore learn to become a people who remember. I think this is one of the reasons that we as a church have bestowed as one of the fundamental values of this church, celebration. We look back to what God has done in our lives as a church through testimonies and through things like our five-year church birthday. And we do that because we seek to remember the love of our Savior who is at work because it's so easy to be fearful and to forget. So do we remember? And finally, the prayer of David in verses 7 through 8 teaches us how to pray in persecution and how to pray for our enemies. It shapes our hearts to see that justice lies in God's hands and not our own. And this gives us a, a distaste for vengeance. It teaches us to pray for our enemies' good, which is often in their best interest to learn the lesson through punishment for their evil. And this often happens by praying that God would intervene and stop the plans of their enemies. And so we pray for justice and for God's works in their lives and the lives of others. And so friends, we need not fear because God is our savior. We do one illustration as we close. One pastor, Joe Novenson, tells the story of a man who sailed the seas back in the 1700s. This man made his living by making transatlantic voyages, who, uh, but was preparing to leave all this behind and settle in America. He was on his final voyage, and he was traveling with his fiancée when bad weather came upon them. The storm was fierce, as weather on the Atlantic often is, and waves higher than houses came crashing upon the boat. Thunder clapped around, and only light the only light was the flash of lightning cutting through the darkness. The wind roared back and forth, making the night a frightful one. And as the man piloted the vessel, his fiancée emerged from below and frantically ran toward him. She was afraid and weeping and proclaiming that death would be their fate. And so the sailor seeking to comfort her said, God will see us through. But she honestly responded, how can you be sure? And the man drew his sword and pointed at his fiancée, saying, Are you afraid? And she responded, No. And he said, Why not? And his fiancée responded, Because I know the heart behind the hand. So it is with I and God, he responded, I know the heart behind the hand. And so, friends, do you know the heart behind God's hand in your fear? Because God is our Savior. He is our shield, our glory. He is not distant, and he has acted on our behalf. Because this is his heart, we can be freed from fear, even amongst our enemies. Let's pray that God would help us. God, we are thankful uh, for this word, which is preserved for us so that we may not have fear. We are thankful for your table as we approach it, that it is a reminder uh, of your finished work. We're thankful that we need not fear even death because you took death upon yourself so that we might have life. God, would you help us to remember who you are when we are afraid? Would you give us boldness and confidence to move forward faithfully? God, uh, we lift all these things in your name. Amen.